Uh, before John heads uh, down, we've got a few things we want to be praying for, um, especially today. Um, and uh, some of you may have may have noticed, some of you may not have. It just it just kind of depends on whether you got that kind of ear. But um, John recently has gone to like a doctor and some speech therapist or whatever. Um, when you're when you sing all the time, uh, you know, hundreds of times a week in preparation, and then on Sundays and whatever else. So John's voice started struggling. A lot of singing, right? Um, a few months ago, started struggling, and you may have caught that. You may or may not have, but just so you'll know, he's we are he's he's doing what he needs to do to get that checked on. Drinking lots of water, um, and you'll notice more people like Heather this morning will be lead singing. John is not hired to be the lead singer; he's the lead worship pastor. He just happens to have done the lead singing it's, for it's hard years. sometimes to not right. It, it, it feels like a a very strange thing to not be, but we've got really incredibly talented people yep. um, in our in our church, and I don't have to be. So that's, that's right. Nice. So we want to pray for him and for his voice as it's recovering, as he's resting, and he was told to lay off certain foods oh um, <laughs> that he likes. Um, no and so, happiness. I know it exactly right. All the happy foods are pretty much gone for a while. So, um, we also want to be praying um, for uh, uh, Robert Owens' brother-in-law died just yesterday or maybe the day before, and he's a member of the church, and he was there very close. And so, um, he had sent out something for people could be praying for him and his family, and then also, especially anybody from I guess Bullard, um, Emily Sykes, and Anthony Photo in the car accident, and then Emily passed away yesterday, I guess. And so I think I've got those names correct. Um, and so we want to be praying for them as well. So I want to pray for John's voice and these other requests. And then uh, as we're getting started in, in today's conversation. So Father, we're so grateful for the work that you do in our lives. Um, and um, God, you are, you are in no way ever dependent on any specific messenger. And you're not ever dependent on us in any way. Um, our talents, our skills, our gifts, uh, our training, our education. Um, Lord, these are all blessings and benefits and bonuses that you give us so that we can bless each other. Um, and so right now, Lord, I pray that you would give uh, John especially patience. Um, and uh, Lord, he uh, loves to be able to lead us well to worship you in praise and singing. And uh, God, I thank you that there are people in our church like Heather and others who can uh, take some of those leadership roles with their gifts as well. And so I, I pray that you would continue to provide that in amazing ways. And we know you're faithful. Lord, I pray for these families who are suffering from loss right now. Um, God, it's, it's a, all during all the rest of the other stuff during quarantine, people are still getting sick from other things and are even, um, as, is, as is the normal part of life, dying from different reasons. And Lord, I pray it's tough on the families. It's hard for them to grieve, and it's hard for them to gather, and it's sometimes hard for them to know how to handle those things. And I pray for wisdom, and especially, Lord, the comfort as only your Spirit can give comfort. I pray that for all of us, Lord, that you would take good care of us and comfort us, and then give us a chance to comfort each other as well. So I lift all these up to you, trusting in you, um, knowing that you are a Father who loves to give good gifts. And so these are some good gifts we would ask for in your Son's name, through the power of your Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thanks, John. Um, all right, so jumping back into Mother's Day Part 2, um, I love being part of a church where um, we can decide in the middle of the sermon that it's a two-part sermon, and uh, no one freaks out about that, um, especially staff doesn't freak out about that, which I think that would normally freak staff out in other places, but they're, I think they're used to me 
making changes midstream. Um, and so, um, so we want to go back and touch on, we had finished up with Rahab, but I want to go back and touch on a little bit this person of Rahab, because I'd promised you a, a, a mother's story, a story about a mother. And so, and we want to fit, wrap up the story a little bit of Rahab and then move into the story of Ruth and spend a lot of time talking about, a lot of time today talking about Ruth. But um, my, I kind of said last time, my favorite thing about Rahab is her awareness of things that the people of Israel should have been aware of. This really is so much better. Let me just, just tell you, like this, this is just better. Um, okay, sorry. Um, I'm just enjoy, enjoying this. Like mm-hmm. it was, huh. okay, so, um, so here we have a Joshua 2. For we've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you um, came out of Egypt, which remember this, that had happened 40 years before this conversation. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And sometime during those 40 years, that happened probably 20 or 30 years ago. It's hard to know for sure exactly where that falls in there. But here's what I love. I love that Rahab was living more in fear of the power of God than the people of Israel 40 years before had been able to live in the fear of of the power of God, or even in the trust of the power of God. And so I don't know if she was around then or not, or if she's young, how old or young she is now, but regardless, either she has had told her these stories or she experienced them secondhand through other people. And so just, just the fact that you see her knowledge and awareness of what God has done and how that's about to change her behavior, mm-hmm. that's, that is so much of what the gospel is all about, is the recognition of what God has done, and then what does that change in our lives? Like we talked about at Easter, this, this changes everything, or at least, it, it, I mean, it does, and then it should. And so, and so that the way we do everything is, is affected and infected by these truths, and, and it is Rahab. She puts all her eggs in this basket. She risks everything on this. Um, and so, and then of course you have the whole picture, this beautiful picture of the scarlet cord, um, which, which looks a whole lot like Passover and looks, um, even for us, amazingly like blood running down a cross type of thing. Like there's a, there's some pretty powerful pictures there that are created. So reminding you, that's where we had wrapped up was with Rahab. And then this week we're going to spend some time in Ruth, um, which, um, just a couple of Christmases ago, mm-hmm. yeah. we went through Ruth during... Advent. And so if you want to go back and get a more in-depth discussion of the book of Ruth, we did four Sundays on Ruth. Um, <coughs> here we're recognizing this foreign woman raised to worship the most brutal and evil of gods. I'm not going to get into that this morning, but the, the, God, the Baal kind of pantheon um, was not, there was nothing sweet about them. There was nothing picturesque. Was there, the brutal, evil, um, destructive, devouring, um, just just awful in every way. She was fortunate to escape without her parents having burned her alive in the worship of Baal. And here, now she's devoted to this bitter old woman who is the mother of Ruth's dead husband. Um, a tragedy at the end of Ruth chapter 1 is oppressive. Here you have, um, we'll, we'll, we'll back up a little bit and talk a little bit about this. Um, but I do want to comment before we jump in more, before Paul jumps in here more, especially for the seniors this is, a, this is a great one. I'm speaking to college students. If I get to go speak on a college campus, one of my favorite things to teach is through Ruth. Um, because um, the, a lot of the questions that college student age students are asking are answered in the book of Ruth. 
Um, now, sometimes we ask the wrong question, like what kind of spouse should I be looking for versus what type of spouse should I be preparing to be? But Ruth answers both of those. Mm-hmm. Um, you're supposed to, if you're a man, you're supposed to look at the character of Boaz and go, I, w- I want to be like him. And if you see the character of Ruth, you go, I want to be like her. If you're a woman, the way it often plays out, though, is you go, man, I want a woman like Ruth. How do I get her? And the book of Ruth answers, well, you've got you to be Boaz. Or a girl going, man, how do I get a guy like that? Well, you're going to have to be a Ruth to attract a guy like that. Like this is, those, those two people, find, when they find each other, there's this power marriage that's created. Um, and in fact, that's part of what gets, that's happened with their children extra. The kind of people to seek out for friendship, for dating relationships, for accountability, who you hang out with. If you're a guy and you want guy friends, they need to be like Boaz. If you're a girl and you won't hang out with the girlfriends, you need to, they need to be like Ruth. The, these characters and the way they play out in our life is so beautiful and the type of character to live out the type of people they are. So jump in, yeah, jump in a, there, Paul. A little bit on the comment on some of these characters. Um, so far, last week when we talked through all the women, we kind of were just considering these short little snippets um, that are kind of recorded in Scripture to tell us about them. Here we get an, an entire book, a, a short story that walks us through this entire narrative. Um, and this book, of course, falls under the namesake of Ruth, yet it's interesting that both Naomi and Boaz speak more in this book mm-hmm. than Ruth itself. Um, all these characters play in there, but I do think it's interesting of the role Ruth plays and why she's still the namesake. Um, I heard it once put like this, Naomi almost is the main character of the plot. She's the one mm-hmm. getting this ball going. Boaz is the main character of the dialogue. He's the one who's carrying all the words uh, throughout this time. Uh, Obed is almost the, what we'll get at the end, is almost the main character of the purpose right, of the book, right. why we have it. The rest um, of the story. But Ruth's character is truly probably the main character of mm-hmm. this book. We're supposed to see Ruth's character as the primary character uh, of this short story. Um, and true, like you just said, oftentimes that's linked into Boaz. Um, mm-hmm. Oftentimes their character is, is matched up, and we should see how they're matched up. But even Boaz, it's, uh, his opportunities for character come only out of Ruth's demonstration of character first. Right. She gives the opportunity for Boaz's character to be demonstrated because she has her own character. Similarly, like Naomi, Naomi actually probably doesn't have necessarily the highest picture of character presented here. She has a little bit more struggles, human faults that we can relate to. Um, but the whole reason she actually even gets to uh, make the, some of the noble statements that she gets to make and participate in the noble story that she gets to participate in is because Ruth makes this choice uh, of a display of her good character. And through this character, we actually see um, some of the main revelations of this whole book come to light. Um, one, we see that because of her display of pure character, God chooses um, to display the redemption of his people. He chooses how he's going to give rest to his people and how he seeks to give a ruler. These are three mm-hmm. main things that we're going to see. And all of them come out of this character display from what we'd say, of like what we kind of talked about with, our other, uh, with Rahab and some of our other ones, an unlikely participant. Right. Um, because when we, look at, when we look at who Ruth is, one, she's a Moabitess. She's right. not a native uh, Israeli, um, and not a person of, of God's chosen people. And so why would God choose her to show the redemption of his people? He should choose probably, if we were writing the story, one of his people. Right. Also, we see that she's poor. There's, there's, I mean, nothing in her name that she and, owns. And let me comment. This is, okay, not only is she not an Israeli, but she is from Moab, 
Right. Which part of the time of the judges, the Moab, are, the Moabites are enslaving. So this, this would be like, you know, those of us from the 80s, this would be like having the main character be a Soviet. Right. Like having the good, yes. the, the hero of the story being an enemy like that. So that's, a, that's significant too. Yep. Sorry, go ahead. Nope. And, and then also again, so she's this foreigner, she's, she's poor. Um, if you talk about any people group that doesn't experience rest, um, you talk about those that are highly impoverished. Right. Um, and then she's childish, ch- childless, less, childless, <laughs> without child uh, in the beginning. Um, and so if you're going to set up somebody to give a ruler to a people, why would you pick a poor, widowed, childless foreigner to yep. do this. And yet, this is where, we're starting, where we start to, um, because it isn't about the, uh, the character she plays and her identity of who she is. It's all about the character she displays out of her faith for God. Right. Tom Constable put it like this, uh, and so I thought it was important enough to throw it on the, sh- on the screen. In speaking to individuals God uses to bring his will to pass, it is not their natural condition, but their faith in him. Even though Ruth was a Moabitess, a childless woman, a poor God used her to accomplish his purpose. Faith always trumps nature as a prerequisite for the usefulness by God. Um, And I think this is, again, this is the demonstration that she gives us. And this first show or demonstration we get of Ruth is actually a display she makes towards Naomi. Right. So how many of you, um, those of you who are married, how many of you, as part of your wedding ceremony, did you have the... um, where you go, I will go, your people will be my people, um, et cetera. That you had that, did any of you have that in your wedding ceremony? Wives, if your husband did and he doesn't remember it, let him know. Like, remind him <laughs> that that was in his wedding ceremony too. Okay, so this is really common. Here's what's wild. That's not from a wedding ceremony in the Bible. One of our mics is popping. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it wasn't from the, see if we can, I'm going to set mine here. See how long I can go without standing up and dropping it on the floor. Um, all right, so uh, that came from this conversation between Ruth and Naomi. When Naomi sends her, when, when Naomi's ch- son is dead, Ruth's husband, and she tries to send Ruth back to Moab, Ruth says in Ruth 1, 16 to 17, what we consider maybe in the entire Bible such a statement of devotion, an utter statement of devotion, it's the one we use now in weddings Um, even though that's not what it was. Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you, for where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. This is, when we talk about devotion as one of our three pillars here in the church, this idea of saying, I'm, I'm all in. I'm committed. My eggs are in one basket. This is the answer to the questions. Those are the type of things. We used to teach character traits to young men and, had them to, and women and had them define the devotion was always some version of wholehearted pursuit. It's, it's a wholehearted thing. I pursue it and only the things that go with that. If it doesn't go with that, it has to go away. So I pursue, I pursue this one thing and everything else that falls under that only. So, again, that's, that's an amazing picture. This, this living parable of God's love for His people, marriage, is, is sometimes somehow described by this type of character. Not condition. Her condition makes no sense. Her character is what makes her the appropriate hero of the story. So, um, and so this, this is a, again, we could go into so much detail. We're not going to today because we're focusing in on these people, um, not the whole storyline. 
But Ruth, Ruth then gleans, and we're going to get a little bit about gleaning here in a second. She's going to glean just to postpone their destruction. Um, two, two widows, not married. Um, really, they have no, no, not much standing or hope in Bethlehem outside of their ability to gather some food, maybe beg, and hopefully avoid other types of professions, but, but that seems imminent. The Bible adds this commentary um, in Ruth chapter 2. So in Ruth chapter 1, you end Ruth chapter 1 with a sense of hopelessness. You move into Ruth chapter 2 this way, um, and in verse 3, she, so she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was the clan of Elimelech. Um, and this is very much so the writer of Ruth speaking tongue-in-cheek. Mm-hmm. It just Listen, by some strange coincidence, she ended up working in the field of this redeemer, of this almost Messiah character, Boaz. Um, and that's not a coincidence at all. Um, in fact, biblically, we would say, obviously, that's not at all meant to be a coincidence. This is who she runs into. But to understand real quickly a little bit about what gleaning is. Yeah, so gleaning was actually a, a characteristic that God told his people to do. This was a command and instruction of God um, that he left. And in fact, we find it um, in Leviticus 19, uh, 9 through 10, when it talks specifically here about um, wheat fields and then also vineyards. And it says this in verse 9, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither should you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them, and here's the whole purpose, you shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. This was God's command for his people to um, be a blessing and to take care of those that are sojourning and those who are poor. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, this is the, this is, these conditions exactly describe Ruth here. She's the sojourner. She's mm-hmm. the poor. If anybody's supposed to participate in gleaning, it is her. This isn't a charity handout. This doesn't mean we'll see in a minute. This doesn't mean that she doesn't get to uh, have to work hard at this. Um, but this is a provision uh, that, is, that is commanded to God's people so that the poor can be taken of, that they don't glean right up to the edges of the field. Now, we've talked about this uh, in the past. We, namely, we've talked about the idea of like what God doesn't say here is he doesn't specifically yeah. say how big of corners you should have, right. um, how, how, when you should stop. Um, I actually heard a more pragmatic approach uh, this time around than I've ever heard before, um, where one, he's actually a Jewish scholar, was citing um, the fact that this is the Iron Age, and so they would be implement- the tool of implementation for these wheat fields would be the sickle. Anybody ever swung a sickle? Uh-huh. You know, some, of y'all, some of y'all swung a sickle? What, uh, what pattern do you cut into the ground when you cut with a sickle? A neat square? No. No, it's a round motion. And so you have these round circular clearings, but yet all the land would, would be divided into square lands. What you do is you'd have uh, a group of families that would go out and they would, um, in essence, have to clear the land. If you've ever been to Israel, uh, the natural soil is not good for farming. No. It's all rocky. And so they have to put a lot of effort, a lot of uh, work into removing all those rocks and clearing this land. And they would clear this square pattern and then they would divide that up um, accordingly in these smaller rectangular places. Lots, according probably to the prominence or right. the wealth or the amount of uh, money maybe that was gone into uh, clearing the land. And so you'd have these little sections. And then when it was time for harvest, you would seed those. And you would those, now that they've come to maturation, they're ready to be taken down, you'd go out there and either yourself or you'd have paid workers. Right. And you would be clearing this, cutting in these natural circles. Well, when you have this rectangular shape right. and you're cutting in the circle, when you get to the corners of that, you actually then have to 
stop the motion of the natural way of using a sickle, and now to only cut the corners, you'd have to have a little small motion right. to do it. And his point was, you almost have to go out of your way and work harder and more meticulous to defy God's command to be sure. a blessing uh, and to leave those with it. And so uh, naturally, these, these corners of these properties would be uh, un, uh, left untouched, again, so that somebody could come back in and be able to glean off of them. Right. And once they were all cut down, then what they would do uh, is they would bind all of those, all that wheat together so that they could pick it up, take it to the threshing floor. And right. so obviously, the bindings would either slip or some would fall out in that process. And God's command is you don't pick that up so that, again, somebody can come back and be able to um, glean or take any kind of provision from your work, your endeavor that they get to work and participate in uh, because, again, they're either a sojourner or they're poor. But this is, this is what we run into, and this right. is the practice that uh, Ruth is doing. And then in this practice of doing it, she's going along these fields, and then she comes to Boaz's. Right. So you get this great moment where Boaz shows up at his field, and he greets his his workers, and then he kind of immediately asks, by the way, who's the woman? Now, you would think, and probably there would have been multiple people out gleaning, not just this one person. And so the question would be, what makes her stand out? And we'll talk a second about a couple of options there, but what gives us a hint is the answer that his foreman, his, his manager, gives. His manager gives an answer to him when he says, Okay, who is she? His answer, the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves and the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Now, what seems to make her stand out is her work is the fact that she's working hard. She's, she's right up on the heels of the professional harvesters. She's She's been working all morning. She's taken very few breaks. She's, this, is, this is what clearly stands out to Boaz. Is, is almost, you can imagine him going, who's the woman who's working so close to the professionals? Who's, who's the woman who's working so close to my staff? And he says, listen, she's been on their tail all day. I mean, if they drop something, she's got it. Like it's, it is, she's just sitting and waiting to pounce on anything they drop, on any corner they leave, and she's just ready to work. She's working hard. This seems to be what makes her stand out. This... Aside from the fact that, that the, the guy, what I love is, and we're not going to, we could dive into this, we're not going to, she's gracious about it. She, by law, she has the right to, to glean. She doesn't no. have to ask for permission. No. But she does. She's gracious. She's hardworking. She's diligent. She's devoted. I mean, these traits are such beautiful traits that she has. And this is, again, to take a second and, and speak into those who are you know, headed off to college or about to start work professionally or whatever, the graduates, um, character is what carries us through. This is, this is what takes us through. When you start feeling the pressure to do things the different way, to cheat, to change the things out of, out of, in out of alignment, like the fact that she's made, this is who she is. She has chosen this for who she is. She, she's continuing to live this out. She's making hard decisions with it. And those hard decisions become things that we can hold on to and that, that carry us through. And we're saying, okay, I'm going to stick with this. I'm not going to move from this. And so one of the comments that I'd love to ask, especially when we're teaching young people mm -hmm. or college students, when I ask at this point, I ask the question, is Ruth beautiful? Is Ruth attractive? So what do you, what do you think? Any thoughts? You got some yeses, some sures, some, okay. 
What do you think, Paul? Yeah, I, I certainly think she's more attractive than Boaz. That seems to be the, <laughs> well, the case with so many of us, and I know I'm myself <laughs> included in that camp. Yes, uh, that, of course, I married way up when it comes to looks to my wife. Mm-hmm. Um, because, and Boaz kind of says that later on when, mm-hmm. when they have an interaction where he, he at least acknowledges her to be young right. and him to be, why did you find favor in me, who's just this old man? Um, and so he's at least saying she's young and young enough that she's attractive enough to go find a younger husband, um, whether poor or rich, that she could go and do that. So why is she choosing him? Um, he at least says this, um, and we mentioned last week uh, the teaching from the Mishnah, the, the rabbinical teaching that lists the four most beautiful women uh, in the world listed in Scripture. And Ruth's not on Ruth's that not a, list. Not one of them, yeah. And so, again, it's kind of just interesting. We don't really know, but what we do know clear is the foreman's response about um, well, who she is and that she's cared for Naomi, mm-hmm. and then more specifically, um, after he give, gives over his uh, willingness for protection for her to glean, uh, he makes comment, uh, and when she falls down humbly and accepts his provision, he makes a comment about what he is just attracted to in this, why he's giving this to her. In in chapter 2, verse 10, it says this, then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, and this is a three-part thing, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. So one, she has a reputation that's already gone before. Talk about a character. It's already gone before. He's heard of this. Two, and how you left your father and mother for your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. And so she's, again, he is commenting on her actions, actions that have gone before her. Her character is displayed in her actions. And then he finishes this verse in 12 uh, to comment on the motivation behind her character and her actions. And we may miss this because we're not uh, good Jews who would have had all the Psalms memorized Mm -hmm. and would have heard them um, as much as we would recite movie quotes or think of things. This would have jumped out. But what Boaz does, he actually mashes together um, a clever phrase here, pulling from Psalm 9 in Psalm 91. Psalm 90, a prayer of Moses for his people. He's, he's extending that prayer and blessing to her, a foreigner. Um, so the only way that he's doing that is he's acknowledging her great faith that's demonstrated right. in this, to be included into the people in the prayer of Moses. Uh, and then he uses from Psalm 91. We don't know who wrote Psalm 91, but we do know when, the, when we get to the line of being taken under the fold, um, being welcomed into the fold, uh, we do know that that comes as an immediate response from a, a request of God by an individual who declares faith in God. Mm-hmm. And so what, what Boaz is doing here is he's actually mashing together from Psalm 90, Psalm 91, comment on why she's done these two things, why she stayed devoted to Naomi, um, why she's left her land to come to this land, is because apparently she's doing it out of a demonstrated faith for God. Yep. And he says this, he says, uh, the, Lord, the Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full war- reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, who, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. This is it. God uh, is declared as this... Um, as this one whom that those who put trust in, he will be their refuge, he will be their fortress, he will take them into this fold. Um, and what Boaz is recognizing here is because Ruth, who shouldn't get all of this uh, claim and welcoming in, not as a part of God's people, is welcomed in all again because of her faith. And so whether it is Boaz is physically attracted to her or not, it certainly is he's attracted primarily to her right. character. It's, it's wild that her, her attractiveness or her physical beauty is just never mentioned one mm-hmm. way or another. And so clearly that's intentional, 
Um, it could, easily could have commented. Sometimes people, people's physical attractiveness is commented on in the Bible. And so I think that's on purpose so that we don't lose track of what is more important in this, mm-hmm. what is clearly being taught as what matters the most. So in this process, we get this account in the Bible that teach us what kind of a man or woman we should seek to pursue and seek to be, especially in romantic relationships, friendships. In this process, we learn that Boaz is a man's man. After digging through, years ago with Ross Strader across the street, he and I taught a Sunday on Boaz, and we spent numerous hours digging into the character of Boaz and walked away going like, I mean, I have a man crush on this guy. He is, he is a phenomenal man. I mean, just everything about him. He just, he just shines out in the world that he lives in. Wise, aware, protective, intentional, responsible, gracious, kind, generous, gentle, a leader among men. And we talked about, uh, last week talked about some name meanings, and that's also in the podcast this week, discussion of names. Um, what's interesting is before the time of Boaz, as far as we know, the name Boaz does not have a meaning in the Hebrew language at the time. Later, if you look up what Boaz means, um, there are some references, but they're all as clearly connected to the character of Boaz. Mm-hmm. He gave the name meaning. How cool is that? To be able to be the one who takes that and gives it that kind of meaning. Um, how will he treat this foreign widow? Why is he treating this foreign widow like treasure when no one else would do so? How does he see treasure where other people see a problem? In fact, later in the story, there actually is another man who specifically says, it's too much trouble. Mm-hmm. Okay? So I promised you a mother story. You may not know this. I didn't for a long time. Um, Matthew 1, we get the genealogy um, of Jesus. In the genealogy of Jesus, I'm going to start in verse 4. And Ram, the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. So if you didn't know until today, um, Boaz's mother was Rahab. So where would Boaz have learned the character to see treasure where other people see trouble? Where would he have learned to accept this pagan, this woman from a pagan background who other people would only see as a problem? Well, I suspect it was from mom because she was a pagan woman who could have been seen as just trouble. But instead, she taught him this type of of understanding. So here's a great, powerful message, I think, where we see one of the manliest men anywhere in literature, much less just in the Bible, anywhere. And we can probably trace back a lot of the character he developed to his mother, who we know a lot about. We don't know much about his father, Mm -hmm. but to his mother, who we know a lot about, that she taught him that type of character. So that would have been a great punchline on Mother's Day, wouldn't it? That would have been (laughs) awesome last week. We didn't get there. So here we are now, though, still connecting to this, this message of uh, that the, obviously they're in the lineage of David, Solomon, and of course, Jesus Christ. Jesus. Um, and so this is, as we're looking at this, this understanding of who they are and connecting to that, this is why it's so important that as parents, now let's go back, if we want our children to be like Boaz and Ruth, there's certain ways we need to be raising them up and training them and guiding them to be that kind of person. So 
yeah. comment on this too. And we, we, are, we already had kind of mentioned that Obed, uh, the son that's produced here, um, is kind of the main character of the purpose. Um, because this really is, again, when we talked about all the things that are displayed throughout this book, we have uh, God who is seeking to provide a ruler for his people. And so it is through this line we get David, and then ultimately we get Jesus. And so this ruler is provided him. This ruler is going to be, again, one who redeems and one who gives rest. Um, specifically, why uh, it, it comes in the lineage of David, and that gets highlighted here, is why in our translate or in our copies of uh, the Old Testament, why we actually get um, the placement of the Book of Ruth, why it is um, following the Judges, because this whole starts off with in the time of the Judges, and then why it precedes First and Second Samuel, which is where we get the large. Uh, purpose of uh, right. the story of David uh, is this. So Ruth kind of serves as this transition from the judges into the king, the provision of this ruler. That's our placement here, and so it's a good fit. Um, and so you have, this, you have this woman who starts this story so undeservingly, uh, this poor foreigner who's widowed and childish, and yet childless. Gosh, <laughs> I won't get over that one. And yet, uh, this story ends with this great admiration found from this character, Boaz. In three, uh, Ruth 3, one, or 11, it says this, And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know you are a... And this is an identity statement. All my townsmen will know you are a worthy woman. A worthy woman. Um, it is interesting, and I always find it interesting to note that uh, if we had Jewish copies of the Old Testament, their copies of Scripture, um, their ordering of Scripture is different from ours. Uh, and they actually place Ruth after Proverbs mm -hmm. and before you would get to the Song of Songs. Um, why they do that is the linkage of this character trait and this name right here, Worthy Woman. Because this name, Worthy Woman, is the same one that in Proverbs 31.10, when the declaration is out there, it says, Who is it among that can be found that is a worthy woman? It's the identical phrase. And what the Jewish text is trying to do is they're trying to link that together. Essentially, we've all grown up with this idea of the Proverbs 31 woman, right. and the Jewish text wants to say, and the answer of, Who is this worthy woman? Ruth. Yep. She is the worthy woman. And that's why we were wanting to conclude with Ruth on Mother's Day, because mm -hmm. that was a day that we were getting to celebrate all these worthy woman, women in our lives, ones that have chosen uh, to display faith, to follow the Lord, uh, to answer the call and the role and the responsibilities He's putting forth of them. And that's what we were getting to celebrate and to honor. Um, in fact, we kind of made mention briefly, this is to tie these two together from last week, we talked about all these different roles and, and things that when we were considering people like Deborah, um, mm -hmm. who's leading armies and leading nations, um, all the way down to these Egyptian midwives who have this short little pop in and pop out. All of this uh, is a point to celebrate the roles uh, and the responsibilities that women play in God demonstrating His will amongst his faithful followers and people. Um, Charles Spurgeon wrote specifically to uh, moms writing this in one of his sermons related to this, you are as much serving God in looking after your own children and training them up in God's fear, making your household a church for God as you would be as if you've been called to lead an army to battle for the Lord mm -hmm. of hosts. I think he's right. Mm -hmm. I think this is what we're recognizing when we recognize these worthy women, uh, is that despite whatever it is, if they're responding in faith and demonstrating others to this, um, they are as noble of an endeavor as even those who are called to, to go out to battle, to lead. Uh, and, but again, this is, this is just, we've only commented on some of these biblical women oh and some of their roles, uh, and that there's so much more. We, we were looking at, as we looked through it, 
there's, you know, it's kind of like they talk about with theater. There's no small parts in theater, just small actors. But there's a, um, but in theater, there's actually small parts, just so you'll know. Um, but the, in this, these women, the place of the women in the Bible narrative is so important. God's perspective doesn't seem to be that this role is more important than that role. We just don't see that biblically. What we see instead is these is the, him seeking out people who, who have these linchpin roles, these little roles that, are, that, that seem insignificant, but without it, the whole thing falls apart. When we looked at like the big powerful people, do they matter more? Do the kings and the warriors and the priests? Or is it sometimes these linchpins? Like is it Andrew who introduces Peter to Jesus? Is his role less important than Peter's? Like I don't, I don't think the Bible means to show that or intend that. Hannah who gave birth to Samuel, does that make... Samuel more important than Hannah? I don't think that's biblical. The Hebrew boys who saved, um, uh, who faced down Nebuchadnezzar or the ones who saved Egypt. The Hebrew girls who faced down Xerxes and saved her own people. I mean, Xerxes, Nebuchadnezzar, these are the most powerful people in history. And yet, biblically, we get the accounts of these key people who, who go toe-to-toe with them. So many of the traits is what we're looking for, uh, that we look for in God, are maternal traits. And we don't we don't have a lot of time to spend here, but this is an important part of what we're talking about when we talk about what it means to be, we talked last time, a mother is someone who portrays the maternal traits of God. We unpacked this a little bit in the podcast, so we, we don't have to do it as much here, but the maternal traits of God, that's what a mother is. The, someone who portrays or exhibits or exemplifies the paternal traits of God, that's, that's what a father is. To the degree someone does that in your life, they are a father or a mother to you. Um, and that's we need to be that in each other's lives. We looked at some of these maternal traits. We have um, like this, the trait of the mother bird that you referenced mm-hmm. a second ago. We see it in Matthew 23 as well. Um, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to it. How often, this is Jesus speaking, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing? There's a very, there's, we, when we talked about, and we, we, again, we unpacked that in the podcast, but there's not a maternal character and a paternal character, but there are maternal roles and paternal roles, and clearly a hen gathering the chicks under its wings is a maternal role, and yet it's being assigned to God here. Um, one of my favorites, sometimes moms will reference this idea of being the mama bear, you know, when their, their kids are being threatened. Here's a coffee mug I thought about getting for Ginger. Um, a, the mama bear is somewhat a sweet way to describe the fact that I will rip you open and tear out your insides if you hurt my child, is what it says. That's a, that's the mama bear. Well, that that's also, by the way, God. Hosea 13, 8. I will fall upon, their li- fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breasts, and there I will devour them like a lion, as a wild beast would rip them open. He's referring to himself as the mama bear. And so these maternal traits, those aren't in contradiction. Sometimes when we think of God being revealed as a him, uh, a he, somehow that has to do with his, either his genetics or his biology, or whether he wears boxers or briefs or things like that. That's, that's not a right way of understanding that. That is just the way he reveals himself. In Isaiah, we see God as the comforter, the one giving birth. Um, that's, that's pretty much restricted to women only. The um, hurting, in, even hurting in childbearing, and then remembering like a mother does. The female imagery in the parables is all over the place. Can you imagine a Bible without Abigail, Anna, Bathsheba, Bilna, Candace, Dinah, Dorcas, Elizabeth, Esther, Eve, Gomer, Hagar, Hannah, Huldah, Joanna, Leah, Lois, Lydia, Mike, McCall, Mary's one through seven, um, Martha, 
Miriam, Naomi, Phoebe, Priscilla, Rachel, Rebecca, Sarah, Vashti, Zipporah. Like this, and that's, that's, just, that's just picking from the list, the, the massive list of women in the Bible. This is important that we remember, so I want to close on this thought. 1 Corinthians 12 reminds us, and this is so appropriate for today, us making our first little uh, timid attempts to come back and, and re-engage as a body in person, even as we have been engaging um, out there in, you know, in Etherland, where we're just, you know, hanging out and, and getting to do, uh, getting to, to celebrate together, as I'm assuming the majority of people who will be celebrating with us today are doing now. Um, so, uh, let's look at this. In 1 Corinthians 12, I'm going to read some of the most picks and passages from here. There are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are a variety of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everything. All these are empowered by one and the same God who apportions to each one individually as He wills. We, we are absolutely um, dependent on one another in the kingdom on earth. And we need one another in our lives. That's why it's so important that we continue to reach out to one another. He continues in verse 11, all these... Oh, sorry, I said that in verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. We, we do need each other. We are made to live in community. And so all the rest of you who are starting to experience Zoom fatigue like I am or, or the, the challenges of, of not being able to be together, the value of us... Some of us being able to be here, I hope, is enriching and empowering and life-giving today. Um, it does mean you have to wear pants, um, which is, can be a bummer, I know, uh, unlike back at home. But, um, but it's, worth, it's worth the cost. We're made to live in this community. We, this makes us, you mentioned, Paul, this makes us hungry to have things back to normal. But here's what struck me about that is church itself is meant to make us hungry about what's to come. Like that we go, this, this makes me... So having just a few people, some of the weeks when y'all have not been here, having just a few people makes me hungry for having you here. Having you here makes us hungry for having everybody here. But even having everybody here makes us hungry for what it will be like in the day when we don't have to fear each other and, and, and each other's germs. When we don't have to feel competitive with each other or, or challenged by each other or we don't have to deal with sickness and pain and death and all that stuff. Like that's all of this is meant to be the, the parable of what that's going to be like someday. So hopefully we can keep celebrating that together. Um, anyway, okay, so I do have a couple of business items here. One, in a minute we're going to dismiss. When we do, we're not going to do, we, we thought about doing it by rose, but we're not going to try that this first Sunday. We'll see if we can do it without that. Um, instead, we've got four doors, or four, I mean six doors, four in the back, two up front down here. If, if you can kind of head towards which everyone is near, in a minute, not yet, kind of head to the nearest one, don't bunch up. Uh, that's what we're going to try, to just not bunch up and give people space to get out and that kind of stuff. I'm doing that way. There are baskets. If you came prepared and part of what your worship today was going to be the, to get for a change, to drop something in the basket, which you haven't got to do for a few months, um, you get to still get to do that, but we're not going to pass them. Um, and that's there. Then, here's what we're going to do. Um, if you want to stay, you can. We're going to recognize the seniors a little more, um, and that's going to be live. Now, for those of you who are live, there won't be sound um, because uh, we don't trust the seniors on mic. I'm kidding. That's not why. It's because we're going to be playing music for them, and we don't have the copyrights, the, the right things to, to play this music 
over Facebook Live. Um, that's why it'll actually be silent. Um, okay, so, but you can, grandparents out there, family, if you want to watch or whatever. So we're going to pray together, and then, um, then we'll have a, bit, a, a time of invitation, and then a benediction. And after the benediction, if you want to leave at that point, don't bunch up. Spread out to the six doors we have, great. We'll give you a minute, and then those of you who want to stay can stay for that little bit of a senior time as well. Sound good? All right. Clear as it can be. Let me pray. Um, Father, we're so grateful that everyone could be here who could be here today. We're so grateful for all of those who aren't present this morning, um, but who are um, uh, listening and engaging and, and on, on the different live options um, Lord, we, we love everybody here, and we're so grateful for all the people who are engaged today. And it's been an exciting adventure to see people engaged from all over the world um, with what's going on here on Sunday morning. And I thank you for the, our friends and our family who, who couldn't be here, but Lord, uh, I'm thankful for this, uh, this kind of live studio audience that we get to do this thing live for everybody, and a few of us get to gather. And uh, what a grateful thing that is, what, what a gift it is we're so appreciative of. Lord, I pray now that if there's anyone here who does want to join, that they can do that here in a second. If they, um, if they need to come up here and pray in a minute, that they can do that. Um, and uh, God, I'm so thankful for our moms, um, for the moms in our lives. There's so many. We require many, many different women to portray well your maternal traits, Father. Um, and we're so grateful for that, and I thank you for those, those women. And I pray that we will continue to live that stuff out well. Conform us to the image of your Son. Help us to, have the, to live out the purity and the righteousness and the graciousness. Um, Lord, help us to, to live out following you, not the world. That we would be strange and weird in worldly places because of the stands that we take. That we would stand out to other godly people because of the way we work and the way we serve and the way we behave. God, I pray you would protect us from ever settling for relationships with people um, as anything other than ministry um, who don't know you and who don't draw us nearer to you. So I pray that our boyfriends and girlfriends, that our, our, our close friends um, and our brothers will be brothers and sisters in your kingdom. And I pray for these seniors, awesome, powerful friendships that will draw them nearer to you and not draw them away. I pray that they will seek out your people and your church wherever they go, they won't miss a single Sunday. They won't miss a single event, but instead will be involved directly with your people, with everything they have. Thank you, Father, for your goodness and your graciousness. We thank you for this in your Son's name. Amen.